0: Extracts from Little London Adventures and Cockney Curiosities A collection of amusing historical stories by Clare Newton The Author's Journey I would like to invite you to share in some of East London's delights. It is a treasure trove of curiosities and artefacts. Before I came to live in East London, I didn't really consider there was anything of interest, let alone of importance, in the historical suitcase. At how wrong I was. Back in 2007, and the announcement of the Olympic Games coming to share its extravaganza with London, it was hinted that parts of Newham would undergo a complete transformation with the arrival of four spanking new sports centres and a giant stadium. This spurred me to pick up my camera, dust it down and leap on my bicycle to photograph whatever bits of history I could uncover before it changed forever. Although I'm not a historian, nor known at school for enjoying the inevitable weekly history lesson, I was nevertheless intrigued by the number of 16th century maps of the City of London that threw themselves at me on the computer, each one longing to offer me little clues if I looked hard enough at their pictograms that symbolised something or other. The curious thing I found was that if I overlaid the old map on top of the new map, I could become a bit of a detective and rediscover something. For example, one evening, while peering into the British Library's online archive, I found an odd set of crossroads that looked more like X roads, but a small symbol that looked like a little castle sat in the middle. So off I trot to find the correlating roads, and there, hidden at the back of a rather smelly city farm amongst the hens and the sheep poo, King Henry VIII's hunting lodge. Okay, so I didn't quite know at the time I was looking at such a place, which sat forlornly in the middle of Stepney Green. It did, however, trigger another adventure into finding out what the ruins were, especially after recognising the telltale clues of red Tudor bricks which lay scattered around the site, and, to my delight, hiding amidst the scrambling bramble, a silhouette of a portal gateway made of the same. Pocketing a tiny fragment of the brightly coloured brick, I visited the Museum of London and asked what they thought, which they then introduced me to the local history club. I had a field day, meeting all sorts of people with similar interests, who all eagerly gave me leads and an array of pamphlets and snapshots to set me on my next adventure. With a hot cup of coffee in my right hand, a computer buried under papers while I attempted to hit save at every gem that popped up, I pored over the virtuality of elaborately painted maps, large leather-bound books with fraying gold letters almost flaking off as I breathed at the screen. Then, venturing further afield to rummage in the original undercrofts of the Times International, where it lived in Wapping for a while, to unfold 19th-century newspapers and read first-hand about the Ratcliffe Highway murders in 1819, or about East London's great Lady Angela Burdette Coots, first baroness, daughter of the fifth baronet, and granddaughter of the very wealthy banker Thomas Coots. Do you recognise the name? Oh yes, the bank still lives on. Angela was known as the richest heiress in England, after the banker left his entire fortune to her. But instead of spending this fortune on an ephemeral lifestyle, Angela put the money to do some great things in a poverty-stricken London, becoming an extraordinary Victorian philanthropist guided by Charles Dickens. So after gathering all the nuggets of fascinating facts I could track down for the first book, I went around crafting some beautiful photographs of the area. Not taken as a touristy note to aid a memoir, but really... Bring an appetising twist to haunt you or the reader instead. Here are some of the curious stories I uncovered. The Reason Behind the rhyme. Edmund Spencer, 1552 to 1599, was an infamous English poet. A sense of wit and irony struck a chord with the Tudor Queen Elizabeth I. Born in East Smithfield, London, Spencer published his first epic poem, the Fairy Queen, that can be read on several levels of allegory, including his praise for Elizabeth herself. She was so delighted with this intellectual entertainment that she invited Edmund to court and offered him a life pension of £50 pounds a year for his entertainments. Hungrily, the Queen ordered additional poems. There's a story that the Queen told her Lord High Treasurer, William Cecil, to pay Spencer £100 pounds for an additional and special poem for her birthday was an unspeakable amount of money for the sixteenth century, when an average labourer earned two pounds a year. The treasurer, not unreasonably, fumed at the prospect of handing over such an outrageous wage to a mere poet, to which the Queen replied, Then give him what is reason, i.e. give him what you imagine is the right amount. Nothing, thought the treasurer, Lord Cecil. So, without receiving his due payment, when it was time to recite the newly written poem, Spencer gave the Queen his gratitudes. I was promised on a time to have a reason for my rhyme. From that time unto the season, I received nor rhyme, nor reason. The Queen immediately ordered her treasurer to pay Spencer the original £100. This fueled the beginning of sarcasm. First recorded in Smithfield in 1579, with Spencer's annotation to the Shepherd's calendar. Tom Piper, an ironical sarcasmus, spoken in derision of these rude wits. Tudor sarcasm. A man with a big nose. But it was the Spanish court that fanned the flames of sarcasm with two feuding poets. Francisco de Quevedo y Villages amused gentry in the courts of Madrid in 1645, with this to say about his rival poet, Don Luis de Congoriagote. A man to a nose was glued. Once it was an impossible nose, a grown-sized nose that's hunched like a scribe, a mean swordfish with protruding nasal pubes. It was a sundial that is badly faced. It was thoughtful, distilling vessel, an upside-down elephant above the mouth, the grandest nose from Ovid Nation, the pointing end of the galley's prow. Once it was a pyramid of Egypt, the twelve tribes of noses was, the owner of the infinite nose, so fierce that in the face of high priest and ass it was a crime. Don Luis returned the insult to his rival, Clevedo, announcing... Mr. Anacreon, no one can stumble upon you. That does not say with much courtesy, since your feet are a sad poem and your likeness is like grape syrup. Will you not imitate the comedies of Lope? The everyday Bellerophon does wear comic poetry clogs and puts his spurs to give Pegasus a gallop. With special care your spectacles want to translate into Greek, not having looked by your eyes. I lent my puckered brown eye a little time to the spectacles, because I revealed some loose verses, so all you will understand is about the pantaloons. How Purple Was Invented in Shadwell Chemist William Perkin wanted to cure malaria. Instead, he started a new movement in the fashion industry. In 1856, Perkin was an 18-year-old student at the Royal College of Chemistry. He attempted to create artificial quinine, an anti-malaria drug derived from tree bark. He was unsuccessful. However, his curiosity was piqued when his failures resulted in a thick purple sludge. The colour caught his eye. The sludge, made with a carbon-rich tar distilled from coal, took on a unique shade of purple, a very popular colour in the fashion world at the time. Perkin was able to isolate the compound producing the colour, which he named mauve. Perkin had created the first ever synthetic dye. Perkin dropped out of school and his father, George, used his entire life savings to build a factory that produced mauve-coloured items. Within a few years, the family became extremely wealthy. Perkins' dye was quite vibrant and didn't fade or wash out, but that's not the only good thing that came from Perkins' new colour. Mauve helped kickstart a chemistry revolution. Experiments from other labs soon resulted in thousands of useful carbon compounds, such as an artificial quinine. Shadwell lies at the end of a rainbow. In 1856, it transcended its dank and slimy-sounding name, with the birth of a dazzling colour. Aniline dyes, invented just off of Cable Street, stormed onto the market, bringing clothes and homes as never before. Aniline dyes, invented just off Cable Street, stormed onto the market, brightening clothes and homes as never before. Could it have been coined Perkins Purple? William Perkins' dye was a profoundly patrician purple. He sent a sample of purple cloth to a Scots dyer and it aroused cautious interest. It was value, but would it cost too much? It did not. Perkins abandoned his pure science career in its cradle and, with money stumped up by his father, started manufacturing his dye. He had become an expert in dyeing first, because the colour was initially not as fast as he hoped, and he had to find a way to make it stick, and then because he needed to nudge the methods of his industrial customers from their folkloric origins towards the scientific. In 1858, he opened his colour factory, appropriately in Greenford. Greenford now has the William Perkin High School, and its uniform, we are pleased to report, is purple. At this point, Perkin had another stroke of luck. Purple had come into fashion. The Empress Eugenie was wearing purple in 1857, and everyone wanted it. Once, only Roman emperors wore purple, extracted from sea snails in the Near East. In fact, purple was so exclusive that for centuries our own noble lords had to make do with crimson. But now Perkin had learnt how to turn oddment of soils, rocks and dirt into man made dies.